I'm excited to begin a new series with you in uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the, uh, the book of Colossians, where we will be looking at the first eight verses from chapter one. It's also printed for you just below the song we sang. Again, our reading this morning is Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. Uh, Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, again, this morning we are beginning a new series in the letter of Colossians. This is uh, a relatively short letter. It's four chapters long. It's written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church that he had never been to. He's never met this group of believers that he is writing to. He's only heard reports of them. It addresses issues threatening the church that that we don't really know. Uh, It's kind of like we only have one side of the conversation, one side of the telephone call, so to speak. And so for that reason, we're not sure of the specific details of, of maybe the threats toward that church. It's just through the prescriptions of Paul that we start to put the puzzle together of what exactly is going on. But here's the thing. Because we don't have specific issues in mind, we can't really grasp those What that means is that Colossians has particular relevance and application for the church in every age. Because in many ways, the prescriptions that Paul will give us, those are what are are applicable in, in every age. And so at the end of the day, what we have are four chapters about the greatness of Jesus. And then what it means to live out of that kind of greatness that we have in Christ. And so let me just do a little bit of background information so we can set up to what what exactly is this letter uh, doing? Who is it for? So this is a letter, again, it's written to Christians in the city of Colossae. That's in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Uh, It's a town already in the first century that was past its prime. If I could give you an illustration, which I think is pretty okay, uh, I, I would give you the illustration of the Pixar movie Cars. Have you ever seen the movie Cars? Uh, it takes place in Radiator Springs, and, and Radiator Springs is a town that's past its prime, uh, even though it used to be quite happening because it was on Route 66. But then Interstate 40 was built, and all of a sudden, all of the traffic that used to pass through uh, Route 66 is now diverted away from Radiator Springs, and so its glory days are over. Something similar happened in Colossae earlier in the first century. One of those famous Roman roads was built, and all of a sudden, all of this traffic that used to come through Colossae had been re-diverted to different places. And so it's a city that's past its prime. 
church was made up of a largely Gentile population. It also likely had some Jewish converts. We know there was a sizable Jewish population, and so we have this mixed demographic in the church. And again, and this is so crucial, Paul had never been there. Paul had never personally spent time with this congregation. And so his connection with the church was through a man named Epaphras. Epaphras himself was Colossian, which is pretty sweet. He ministers to his own people, right? He, he plants, he nourishes this church in Colossae. And Epaphras then goes and visits the Apostle Paul, who at this point is in prison, likely in Rome. And he gives this report of the church back in his hometown. And from that report, Paul then writes this letter to the church. So, all of that's the background. Now, here's what stands out to me. As I've been thinking about Colossians, and I've been preparing for this series, here, I think, is where I want to begin. Here is what has stood out to me about this small letter. First of all, it's written to a normal, ordinary church in a very ordinary, normal place. And I think that should resonate with us, right? It, it's no slight of me to say that we're a relatively ordinary people, right? Uh, I don't, I don't, we don't have politicians in this congregation. Uh, we don't have the movers and shakers of, of society. Uh, as far as I know, uh, I don't have any Fortune 500 CEOs. And that's okay, right? There's, there's a beautiful ordinariness to churches all across the world. And, and Colossae is one of those, which I think is pretty sweet. And so we have this letter to very ordinary people. There are no urgent matters pressing down upon them. We have false teaching, but they're not in the church yet. These are just ideas that are circulating around the people. There's no moral crisis that Paul is addressing. And maybe it's for this reason that I think this letter is pretty sweet for us. We are like them, an ordinary and yet extraordinary people. Why are we extraordinary? Well, it's because of the grace of God that we experience just as they have. And so as I've been preparing to preach through this book, what has struck me maybe more than anything else is, is how we have these ordinary circumstances. And so we have, this is the title I gave to this message, right? This is a letter to an ordinary, extraordinary church. And I think that sums up the church in every age and every place. Ordinary and extraordinary. And so right from the beginning, here's what I want to grasp in the introduction that we have. These first eight verses as we get into this book is I think we can glean a lot about who we are. Uh, the, the points I gave that are in your bulletin, right, you see the, the identity of the church, the essence of the church, and the power of the church. Those are the three points. But the last thing I want us to do is to hear those words and, and kind of put them in like Christianese. It's just to think like, yeah, 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 we're going to talk about the church. We always talk about the church. I don't want us to think that. I want us to think, who am I? I want us to make this very personal. Who are we? As Paul writes to the Colossians, what can we take from his instruction and an exhortation to them that I can apply to myself. And I think we have plenty of that this morning. So again, our three points, right? Identity, essence, and I'll talk about what that means when we get there. And then that power to, to be who we are. That power to be who we are called to be. All right? So first of all, our first question, right? What is the identity of the church? You might also write down, who am I? What is my identity? And I think we get a beautiful example of this right here in Colossians 1. And so take your Bibles, look at verse 1 with me. Uh, we have Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Okay, so we have our author. It's Paul. Uh, he is an apostle, which means that he is this authorized, chosen representative of Christ. This will be important if there's false teaching because Paul at this point is reminding them of the authoritative word that he brings. This is the word of Christ for his people. 
But of course, the important point we want to grasp is, is who is Paul writing to? And it's to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I don't know about you, but it's always easy to read past these introductions. It's like we're trying to get past them to get to the meat of the letter. Uh, the reason for that is how we write letters or emails, right? We, we labor over how we address them, right? Is it, is it to whom it may concern? That's very formal. Is it dear so-and-so? I hope this finds you well. And, and listen, whenever I write that, I, I, I probably believe it. I do hope that they're doing well. But you're just setting the tone for the actual purpose of the letter. But we have something more here. This introduction is saying quite a bit, and we want to hold on to that. It's rich. Remember, the question we're asking is, who are we? Who are we as, as ordinary Christians? Again, the Colossians were a wonderfully ordinary group of people. And in verse 2, Paul addresses them to the saints and faithful brothers. And that word brothers, it certainly means everybody. It means brothers and sisters. It means men, women, and children. Everybody included. We have the saints and the faithful at Colossae. So the answer, who are we? Who are you? Right now, this morning, who are you? Uh, if you are in Christ, you are a saint and you are a faithful brother or sister. Ordinary congregation, people he's never met, yet he identifies them as saints. Now that's a word that we have some ba baggage with, don't we? Uh, if you grew up Roman Catholic, right, who were saints? Uh, saints were really super Christians, weren't they? They were set apart from the ordinary body. Or maybe culturally, how do we speak of saints? If, 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 if Judy, right, is a, is a generous and kind uh, and hospitable person, we might say that she is a saint. So maybe it'd be better to translate it away from that baggage word and say to the holy ones. To those who are holy. To you who are holy. And here's the thing. This is not some apostolic performance review. It's not a description of their performance. He isn't saying, Epaphras has visited me and he's given me this report. And I have to tell you, you are all super Christians. It's not that they have attained some high level of moral living. Or spiritual status, in fact, it's the status that all believers have before God as those who belong to him. That's what it means to be holy. You belong to God. They and we, right, we, we, we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, set apart as holy. So they're the holy ones, they're also the faithful ones. Now what does that mean? Well, they're, they're those who look to Christ in faith and cling to him. To be a saint is to be one who Christ has taken hold of, and then we in turn do what? We take hold of Christ. I mean, that's the, that's the Christian, isn't it? Christ has taken hold of me, and so I take hold of Christ. That's not where I want to focus. I want to briefly focus on where Paul locates these believers. Uh, two locations are given right off the bat here that I don't want us to miss. I think this is really profound. Uh, again, he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers, but, but look at the locations. Where are they? In Christ and at Colossae. This preposition at, it kind of drives me nuts that they changed it. It's the same exact preposition. It's the same word. It's in Christ and in Colossae. And I think that's the profound point that we really want to grasp hold of. To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. Two places, right? That's the point. They exist in two places. And, and, and so we have here this doubleness of the Christian life. They're living in a different place within the shared space of Colossae, right? They live along all, all along their Colossian neighbors. 
and yet in a way that is different. And I hope you start to see maybe where this is going, right? You and I are in Christ in Temecula. We're in Christ in Marietta, in Christ in Hemet or, or Menifee to make sure we get everybody in this room taken care of. We are in Christ in Southern California. And so you can almost tie who they are with, with where they are. How are they holy? How are you and I holy? It's because we're located in Christ. And where are we faithful? Well, you're faithful in the place that God has called you to be. This is double citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, but also here, and here matters. Rootedness in place is significant. It's where our neighbors live. And those are the people we're supposed to love and serve. It's where God has called us to be grateful to him for where he's placed us. It's where we benefit from various aspects of common grace that we receive from believers and unbelievers alike. It's also where we have to be sensitive to where God's word and will stand opposed to the cultural currents around us. And so we're unpacking the motives of of our culture. We're unpacking the philosophical assumptions that that maybe contrast the word of God. Uh, We're looking for these opposing visions of the good life that are all around us. And that, by the way, we are sucked up into. And this is a long-winded way of saying discipleship. Of walking with Christ in the place that he has called us to be. Our citizenship is in this world, and nestled within that location, we are in Christ. And so whether you are a citizen in China, or Iran, or Germany, or the United States, there will be significant cultural blessings in all of those places. Significant cultural blessings, and also significant cultural conflict. And part of discipleship is at least this continual return to that dual citizenship of being found in Christ as saints. So who are you? This is the first question. Who who am I? You may not feel like it this morning, right? Who are you? You are a holy one. You are a faithful one. All right, so that's the identity. Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit more. And our second point, what, what is the essence of the church? What is our essence? And, and I think the idea I'm getting there is, what is the character that we are to express? If this is who we are, what should be found in us? And, and so, what is the essence of the church? And, and maybe one way to think about this is essential oils. Think about essential oils for a little bit. All right? So you have mint leaves. Uh, maybe, maybe none of you have ever thought about essential oils. I know some of you have, but, you know, here's where I'm going. You have mint leaves. And so what you're going to do is you're going to extract from those mint leaves their essence, which becomes this really potent, powerful, essential oil. I'm so potent that if you have sensitive skin, it'll burn your skin, right? And so what is extracted from the mint leaf or the lavender flower is the essence of that plant. So the idea here is that if you are to extract the heart of a saint, if you are to extract the heart of a faithful brother and sister, what are you left with? What what is the character of the person? Let me give you another illustration. Think of a coffee pot. All right, Our hearts, our minds, our wills, our affections, those are the grounds. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, particularly in word and sacrament, what comes out in the pot. And so you can start to think through this illustration, right? You can think if it's pride and self-righteousness, something went wrong. (laughs) No, when the the Holy Spirit through word and sacrament is is poured through our hearts, what comes out? And here's the answer. It's it's faith, hope, and love. 
That's what Paul says the answer is. If you want to know the essence, the character of God's people, it is faith, hope, and love. These should be familiar, right? These are the theological virtues. These are the Christian virtues. These three, they pop up all over Paul's writings. Think of, of their most famous reference in, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Right? Faith, hope, and love. But what's the greatest? It's love. Well, here, this is what Paul is thankful for. Is that he is hearing the report of the Colossians, and he says, I give thanks because you are a people of faith, love, because of hope. Colossians 1.3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Three virtues here in Colossians 1, characteristic of who the Colossians are, and, and really characteristic of who we, of who we are or what we should be. We first of all exude faith. That's the first virtue. It makes sense. That has to be first. Um, faith is both that initial faith of believing in Christ for salvation, and it's also the faith of this continuing act of, of trusting in and relying upon what has been accomplished by God in Christ. So they've heard the message of Christ proclaimed by Epaphras, and they believe it. They believe it, and they have faith. Faith is the foundation. It's realizing our own inability to be uh, what God requires of us, right? And so we have to trust in the, in the work of another. We have to trust in the righteousness of another. And this characterizes a Christian community. This is a community built upon the gospel. We aren't the community of the enlightened. In fact, that may be an issue in Colossae, is that there are, there are false versions, false teachers who say you need to be further enlightened. And Paul says, no. No, you're the faithful. We aren't the community of the righteous in and of ourselves. We are not those who are put together. We are united in our unworthiness. We are those who know the depths of our own unrighteousness and we cast ourselves on another. So we are the community of faith. Now this has to lead to something else, which is love. It overflows into love. Paul gives thanks for the love that you have for all the saints. Love for God's people is this outward, lived-out evidence of their faith in Christ. And so if faith in Christ is, in Jesus is the soil, that's the foundation, what kind of fitting plant will arise out of that soil? I think it's one that's, that's humble. Humility, right? That will foster love for all of the saints, especially the hard ones. There's a community of faith where humility comes out and that leads to love. This is always countercultural. Paul gives thanks to God for this love because it's not natural. Paul gives thanks because of the, for this love because it's supernatural. It's something God is doing. And boy, isn't this countercultural today? Our calling as God's people is to invest in a community where often we will rub shoulders with, with others who see the world in different ways. And you see the solutions to the world's problems in, in different ways. We're, we're hoping, we're striving to be a, a place where we have various different backgrounds coming together. Socioeconomic backgrounds, geographical backgrounds, different ethnicities, different temperaments, different spiritual maturities, different views of political solutions. And yet we are striving in love for one another. Why is that? Because we're saying that Jesus strove for me. Because Jesus strove for me and he strove for my brothers and my sisters. 
I love this quote from Richard Sibbs, an old English Puritan. He says this. He says, it would be a contest amongst Christians, one to labor to give not offense, and the other to labor to take none. The best men are severe to themselves and tender over others. I mean, that's the foundation of of, of the gospel, isn't it? That's the humble plant arising out of that soil. Now, where does that come from? Where, Where does it come from that we would be a people who would strive to be severe to ourselves and tender toward others? It's faith in a Savior, right, who for nothing but love, out of the abundance of his mercy, uh, took the, the severity due my sin upon himself in tenderness toward me. And so we're, we're, we percolate faith. We percolate love. And then Paul's last point here in Colossians 1 is that it's because of hope. He hears of their faith and love, and and, and then in verse 5 he says, and this is because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Now what I want you to hear is is this is a powerful reversal to, to how I think we normally think about life and how we think about religion and how we think about spirituality. Ordinarily, I think it goes like this. We have faith and love uh, so that we can attain the hope. I put in the work in order to get the reward. I have faith and love in order to get the the hope that is held out for me and to attain that goal in the future. But Paul, I think, reverses that. Instead, what he says is because you already have this hope, you are exhibiting a life of of, of love and faith. Now, hope here is not subjective uh, confidence in God's promises. That's an element of hope that's important. It's biblical. But instead, this is objective. This is a future inheritance that's secure. Hope here is with this ultimate future. It's this confidence and assurance and expectancy of, of the greater blessings in store for believers in the life of the world to come. Now, we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but if, if there's a false teaching that we can identify that's circulating around Colossae, it, it's that the gospel just simply isn't enough. Christ is not enough. You have to do something to add to what Jesus has done. And so you can already see where Paul's going, can't you? He already says the hope belongs to you. The inheritance is already yours. Clinging to Jesus, a life of love, those don't arise out of insecurity or fear or self-righteousness. They arise out of the person who says of Christ, he's everything. He's my all. I am his because I belong to him, and that means everything. My hope is found in him and therefore is so secure so the question that we need to be asking is, as, as the saints, right, as the holy ones, as the faithful ones, is, is how are faith, hope, and love shaping me? Is that what I'm percolating? Is that what Christ Presbyterian is, is percolating? Are we a people shaped by faith, hope, and love? Now that leads to self-examination. That leads to self-assessment. I don't think those are, those are good things to do. But we have to come to that third point. Right? We, have to, we have to realize, yeah, but what, what, what's the power that will, that will create a people of faith, hope, and love. And that's our last point. We have our essence, right? Now we have the power. Everything we do is because of the hope that is ours in Christ, kept by him. And then beginning in the second part of verse 5, Paul tells us where this hope comes from. He says, of this, of this hope, you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. 
It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, we might move too quick through this passage in order to get to the meat of Colossians, in order to get to the good stuff. I'm guilty of that too. But Paul's doing something really important here. Again, he's telling the church, he's telling the group of believers, he's telling this room right now, he's telling all of us, you have everything. You have everything. First of all, now he's not everything, but first of all, you have Epaphras, which is pretty cool. Because that guy loves you. And from his very human lips, you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. And that's changing the world, just as it changed you people. It's changing the world. The gospel you heard, it's not just information that's just deposited into our minds. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that has the power to save. This is a word that creates faith as God takes that word and, and he applies it to the hearts of his children. So this is what Paul is celebrating. I've, I've heard reports of you, and that just gives me so much joy. And yeah, there are a lot of threats that surround you that offer these alternative paths of life, these, these false gospels, and yet here you are as those who have been changed through the preaching of the word. Now how does Paul summarize the word? It's the grace of God and truth. It's the grace of God and truth. What word can change us? It's the word of grace and truth. There's no single word that gives us the heart of the Christian gospel more than this one word, grace. There's no single thing that we celebrate as a church more than this single concept, grace. It's everything. It's God's one-way love toward us. It's everything. It's grace that opens our eyes to see the futility and ruin, not only of our sin, which it does, but also of our own righteousness so that we might grasp hold of Christ as he is offered in the gospel. It's grace that comes to us in the preached word, and it shows God's love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies with him, we were reconciled through the death of his son. It's grace that transforms our hearts in humility so that we might love one another. It's grace that fills us with gratitude to the God who loves not just me, but my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's this word of grace that's covering a world that is characteristically marked by condemnation. Condemnation of my conscience, of God's law, of the devil. Condemnation of all of the voices that surround me and tell me I'm not enough. And yet here, by grace alone, we confess together. As one theologian says, we dare to say that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. This otherworldly message and power is bearing fruit and increasing. Friends, it's grace that gives us a living hope in our risen Lord. It's grace that has bestowed upon us an inheritance that is kept in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's grace that saves us. It's grace that keeps us. It's grace that changes us. So as we begin this look through this letter to the Colossians, my prayer is that God would use this book to grow us, that we would be fruitful and increasing because of the power at work in our midst by God's Spirit, that we would see God's word for us in this word to an ordinary church, ordinary in many of the same ways that we are, and yet saved 
and loved and kept and empowered by an extraordinary Savior. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would take these words and that you would situate them so deeply into our hearts. Lord, uh, it feels as if it's, it's so easy for so many of these words and ideas and, and, and concepts to, to fall on deaf ears, to, to be old news. And yet, Lord, there's a scandalous reality in, in light of all of this, which is, it really is this fundamental idea of, of, of the undeserving being the recipients of this abundance of grace. Who were we to be called the holy ones? Who are we to be called the faithful ones? Who, who, who are we uh, to, to be a people that have the ability to uh, exude faith, hope, and love as, as, as you have called us to do? And yet, Lord, you are the God who, who not only saves us, but you uh, empower us. Lord, you call us to this calling so that we might cast ourselves upon you. So, Lord, would you take this word, uh, would you build faith in our hearts? Um, would we leave here um, not convicted to go rely upon our own strength, but to cast ourselves on you and to depend on you to create this reality among us? Lord, would you do just that in our midst? We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.